Hi guys, Paul Capon from the Innovation Community here. Uh, today, I'm with Joa Iannotta, uh, who's the SVP of Analytics and Portfolio Management at PNC. She uh, also has a really wide range of experience in federal government analytics and, and the challenges that they've faced in, in modernizing, modernizing too. So uh, how are you, Joa? I'm great. It's great to be here with you. Great. So for the, the members who haven't heard of you, would you mind just telling us a bit about yourself? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I spent most of my career in the federal government, um, first working for uh, our supreme audit institution. It's called the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Uh, I know the U.K. has an equivalent. Um, and then eventually moving on to the U.S. Department of the Treasury, where I was within the uh, branch of Treasury that was focused on making uh, the government's payments. Didn't matter what kind of payment, uh, we were making it, whether it was assistance or a contract, a uh, defense contract, you name it, we had to process it. Um, it was about a year ago, uh, I um, decided to make the big change and join private industry and uh, joined uh, PNC, and uh, that's been a, a great transition. Absolutely. What, uh, during that period, really interested you about working with with data analytics, especially with the, the different institutions of the, the federal government? Yeah, I think the thing that I have uh, become really interested in is maybe two things. First, um, and this stems from my time with uh, GAO, um, one of the values there was making evidence-based decisions and helping Congress in particular uh, to use data, to use information, to inform the types of policies and programs that they were designing or considering changing. Now, they didn't always listen to us, but we tried. And I think one of the things that um, got me really passionate about data, especially big data, is the potential to get insights that have never before been possible. I always thought like basic statistics were sort of dull, but now that you can find all these strange anomalies and get these hints that something more interesting might be going on that you need to consider as part of your decision making, I find that really fascinating. Absolutely. And, and can you tell us about some of the major successes that you achieved throughout your career? Sure. Uh, well, I think my favorite is actually um, when I was at Treasury, I was running um, an analytics organization that was focused on detecting uh, payment errors and fraud risk in the government. And um, at the time, it was it was for the government. It was essentially a startup program. Uh, it had only come into existence a few years ago, and um, they were kind of past the very initial phases of standing up and uh, you know, had a great team of data scientists and um, technologists, uh, but we weren't, when I got there, connecting with federal agencies the way we really needed to. And there was this difficult conversation that would often happen where uh, the data scientists would say very excitedly, hey, we've got all these cool things that we could do for you. What do you want us to do? And the executives at the federal agency who were not necessarily data people, they were focused on their program, would say, well, I don't know, we got a lot of challenges. What can you do for us? And trying to bridge that gap between uh, data and the tools that they had available um, to really do very interesting analyses and to create insights and helping a lay audience that was very focused on their programs to see how that would connect. Um, that was sort of the space that I stepped into and helping that connection happen. And then watching my data scientists go from being bored and I suspect updating their resume on a re regular basis to being really excited and engaged at solving problems and ultimately getting a lot of value for the government. 
Absolutely. And, and the challenges you just described is something that you've probably already seen in, in private industry as well. So <laughs> it's super interesting that there, there, there's that crossover. Uh, specifically, can you tell us about a time that you affected change in, in one of these, these, these business units and, and some of the challenges that came with that too? Yeah, well, you know, I'm going to lean again on, um, I'm going to go back to my federal experience just because I've spent the majority of my time there. Um, I actually want to uh, focus in on some of the interactions that I had with federal agencies, less around a specific program and more around how we thought about how to use data. Um, there, and this was both with federal executives internal to Treasury, across at other agencies, and then working with congressional staff. Um, getting them to think differently about the policies and legislation that govern how we use data within the government context. And I think a lot of those lessons apply to, federal, uh, to uh, private industry as well. We all have to deal with PII, um, and we all have very sensitive data that we have to safeguard. But helping them to really understand that data is not valuable if you're just storing it and protecting it. You have to use it. It's not enough to keep it around so that you can like get audited and meet your records retention requirements. You have to use it in order to make it, make it valuable. And sometimes that means sharing it and getting folks to think about, think differently about what privacy means. You know, privacy doesn't mean necessarily not sharing data. Maybe instead it means not asking the same citizen to provide the same personally identifiable information to five different agencies, replicating that information across those agencies, having multiple uh, copies of that information. Maybe there's a way to protect privacy, provide, and also provide a better customer experience for those citizens. So getting folks to think differently about what privacy uh, means in the context of how we manage data in this age, not in 1980s, but now, uh, and I mentioned the 1980s because that's when a lot of the legislation was passed. That was um, kind of a special, special process and a special moment that was really satisfying for me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned that the, there's a lot that, that businesses and, and government can do to, to really help the, help the customer. Uh, how, are you, how are you seeing that they were leveraging technology to their advantage? And, and what effect do you think that that's going to have on the, on the landscape? Well, I think both um, in my current experience and previous experience, um, uh, one of the challenges that institutions are facing is trying, I mean, you can talk about keeping pace with change and things like that, but really figuring out processes that allow you to onboard new technology, new ways of using uh, data. Um, I'm thinking in particular of graph databases, which I think are really cool. Um, How do you go from experimenting with those things, doing some prototypes, uh, figuring, doing testing to make sure, okay, this is going to work with our systems. This is going to adhere, this particular tool adheres to our, you know, our particular security standards. How do you do that more quickly? Um, There's so much technology in large institutions and in the federal government. And I don't think that this is unique to to our environment Um, in the U.S. I think this is a challenge everywhere. How, as a, a large, established organization that has had data for you know, many, many, many years, how do you start quickly incorporating these new technologies that can give you so much efficiency and not let your bureaucratic process get in the way and prevent leveraging new, new technology that's going to really make some leaps and bounds of improvement? 
Hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting perspective, especially about the, the process piece. I think that's what a lot of people do miss, as, as you just outlined. Yeah. Specifically, what was the biggest impact that you made on a, on a transformation? Hmm. You know, I have to go back to that um, discussion that I was uh, mentioning about um, helping to link uh, sort of the business users with, um, with, my data, with my data team and helping them to communicate. Um, it seems like a small thing, and it also seems like it's, it's sort of a soft space. It's a soft skill. It's not, you know, there was this one piece of technology, and I plucked it out of the sky and brought it in, and boom, our problems were solved. Um, there's plenty of technology and data that can solve problems. What gets in the way of it is how people perceive it, how people talk about it, and how people use it. And so being able to translate between communities and bring them together, that's been transformational in a number of different situations. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it's, it's almost funny to see people spending millions of dollars on, on this new technology. They get the data in and then you know, there's no clean data to actually work with. So they're just back right. to square one, but minus a million dollars. Um, <laughs> with, you mentioned earlier about the Fedor executive, which is uh, pretty interesting. What ways did you find to communicate and, and engage the senior leadership team? Yeah, so I had a particularly um, challenging uh, set of communications, if you will, around um, developing a data strategy, a first one, um, when I was at Treasury. Uh, the, our executives knew that they needed it, uh, but these were, these were not data people. Um, it's not that they didn't understand data, it's not that they didn't ever use data, but they were used to data in in often, often cases, um, sort of how it was transacted, how it was processed, um, and trying to understand how you could use that same data in ways that could create efficiencies across your business. That was tough. And so I was constantly trying to find different strategies to get them to see just how important it was not to focus a data strategy on the things that they were already doing, cybersecurity, protecting privacy, making sure that storage was right. But how can you actually start to use it and really leverage it across the enterprise? What does that look like? And I was surprised at how much push and pull there was there. Um, I think some of the tricks are, as I got more experience with this particular group of executives, um, paying attention to how they communicated and what what things I said they really picked up on and then held on to. It's like, okay, I got to do that again. So I tried, you know, just sort of as an individual, I was really trying to make sure that I was always paying attention to um, what worked for them and then adapting my strategy for communicating with them. Great. And the, the last uh, main question I had for you was, in your opinion, what's the biggest mistake that you made during your career? So I know it's like trendy uh, to say, oh, well, you know, you got to fail fast. You got to fail hard. And certainly, you know, in the in technology communities, that um, that works. When you're dealing with a risk-averse um, agency, like you know, like the federal government, where you know what, if you screw something up and someone doesn't get uh, a payment that they're de depending on, somebody might actually go hungry for a little while. So you can't fail hard and fast in certain institutions in the same way. But the lesson kind of still stands. There were a lot of times when. I didn't, I wasn't as aggressive as I should have been about pushing my ideas forward. I should have stuck with it a little bit longer. And I realized that only in retrospect, I thought I was just doing a good job of blending into the culture and, 
you know, making sure that I was, you know, communicating in an effective way. But when I was finally in a position where I was fully authorized and had the, had, was responsible for making the strategic call on what we were doing, and I had, therefore, an opportunity to push all of my crazy ideas, my organization started to be really successful. So a little more risk-taking, a little less fear of failure, even in a risk-averse environment. Mm. I needed to do it more. <laughs> That's definitely a, a, an interesting perspective to have on that. And the, the whole fail-fasting is something that, that we... Is, is kind of a cliche so really really interesting spin on that um what's the best piece of advice you ever received mm, um if you're not comfortable being yourself at work you need a new job it just means that the culture isn't a good fit for you and you will end up being more exhausted on a daily basis trying to fit in perfectly so uh put some value on those uh those uh sort of more personal feelings. Don't dismiss it as, oh, you know, work is just supposed to be hard. If you're not feeling good going to work and you're not feeling like yourself, you're spending a lot of energy that you could be devoting to your mission on trying to fit in. Screw it. Find somewhere else to go work. What are you really curious about right now in, in the space that you're working in? So I've gotten really interested recently in trying to figure out how we can bring more women into um, data work and technology. Uh, I was just listening to um, Melinda, Melinda Gates's book, um, The Moment of Lift, and one of the things that she had talked about is uh, that early on uh, in sort of data history, um, women were very involved in software development because it was viewed as being more administrative. And then there was this transformation where everybody realized, whoa, there's a lot of power here. It's not just all about the hardware. And for whatever reason, you know, that was one dynamic. There are many others, but I don't see as many, and there, there are statistics to demonstrate this, that there are fewer women now in computer science programs than there were 30 years ago. That's really disturbing. So I want to figure out how to help change that and how to make sure that women stay engaged. What is it about the culture we're producing? Um, what is it about the work? Something. I don't know what the secret sauce is, but I want to figure it out and make sure that we are making sure that women are coming into this really fantastic field. That's super interesting. And, and it's, it's an inter- I, I never knew about the, 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 the women in software. So that's a really good insight for me as well. You mentioned Melinda Gates, but would you say she's your favorite author or do you have any other leaders who, who inspire you? Uh, I think I'm a little bit obsessed with that book right now. So that, that is the one that is really jumping out at me. <laughs> Do you have any favorite quotes from it? Uh, not from it, but um, I do have a favorite quote uh, from a decidedly different genre. There is no try. Do or do not. Yoda. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so bearing in mind some of the things you just said, the last question I have for you is, what advice would you give for aspiring women in data? Uh, don't give in to fraud syndrome or uh, imposter syndrome. Um, I've had, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to younger women where they've uh, said, oh, well, you know, uh, I sort of have some experience doing some coding. I mean, I wrote this program that discovered that we were losing money hand over fist in this one area and it was really efficient. And then we built it in production. But I mean, I don't really know how to code. What? <laughs> so I really would encourage women to um, embrace the uh, projects that they've done and to talk about them with confidence and to realize 
There's no certification or authority that's ever going to tell you you're there now. You just need to recognize that the experience that you had, if you had a good outcome, it matters and it means you're doing it. So talk about it with confidence. Some really great insights there, Joa. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you.